taking command is a story of how God, through a few questing and engrailed master masons operating in America, gave the world the gift of spiritual freedom. Seventeen. Elizabeth and the general board their ship with the dawn. Hal gives her his arm playfully, and then of a sudden he scoops her up and carries her to their stateroom. His boot kicks their door shut. Some time later, a knock is heard on their stateroom door. General Patterson asks Hal from behind the door, yes? Lafayette, with a large body of soldiers, approaches. I will be there directly. Cut to officers gathered. Howe, Cornwallis, Grant, Patterson, Gray, Clinton, Mackenzie, and Balfour. Ah, the boy wonder, Lafayette, making another move since Brandywine. Howe laughs. Yes, why not? He will be our guest of honor at dinner tonight. I may have relinquished my command, but this sport is too enticing. Let's see, Grant... Grant steps forward. Not too much drink last night. Never, sir. Chuckles are heard. You will leave directly with your 8,000 men and encircle the boy. Grant, make sure Lafayette does not see you. I want him. Word has it he has a second sight, so be extra careful. Gray, you will worry the left flank. And Clinton, you and I will keep the boy amused in the front. How takes in Clinton? Any discussion needed, General Clinton? Clinton, with a true smile, none now, General Howe, or rather, Brethren Howe. They shake hands in fellowship as the others cheer. Turn out, men, let's bag the boy and invite him to dinner. Fancy French wine on the Frenchman. Scene 118. We see General Howe and Elizabeth on a rise above the harbor where his ship, the Andromeda, waits. They sit in her carriage. His horse is tethered to the back, and six officers wait at a distance. Of course I am afraid for my life. Impossible, E. You will have guards at all times. That's not what I mean. It's us together, William. You see what I see and know what I know. No, what I want to say is, you love God in the way that I do. We feel him together in everything. And now, without you, utter loneliness. He tries to control her tears. My love, I know, I know. And beautiful women in London will surround you while I only chance it with you. E, what is beauty without your rare raised-up spirit, my little girl? It is nothing. Elizabeth, my love, only your soul filled with boundless delight inspires me. I would die for you over and over again. My love, your joyous self is everything to me. Please, never doubt me. 
Don't you know our souls are entwined? I have sworn this to God by my Templar oath. I will never go against either one, for to do so would be to deny God himself. I feel all that you feel, my dearest William. Your spirit quickens me with truth. I am so sorry. At a time like this, everything seems impossible to me. I know, my E, you are with our child, and all become heightened. My God, it is unbearable for me to leave you in this uncertain state. He turns to her, shaking his head. His thoughts are, maybe I don't have to go. And then his face shifts with, I have to. Elizabeth, our efforts cannot be in vain. I must return. Elizabeth nods through her tears. Elizabeth, I will write, and you will send me your poetry, and my friends will keep you entertained. I am the one to worry. Each one is in love with you and would lay down his life for you, and nothing more. I trust them. Or they will have to contend with, Elizabeth, please don't cry. Look here, love. I wear your miniature always. How takes from his bosom a chain with Elizabeth's likeness inside of a locket that he opens to show her. She is ecstatic and renewed. No one will ever see this but you, my love, ever. Oh, William, you are ever my true St. George. I have poetry for you I almost forgot. It flows in both directions, from me to you and from you to me. Let me see it, E. She hands it to him in an envelope with other writing. He looks and gestures for her to read, but she shakes her head that she cannot. How takes it up, collects himself, and reads aloud. My eyes will always sweep across the sea, searching for your sail, and I will see it in every snowy seabird's tail, in every misty breath of ocean wail, in every puffy cloud blown round by distant gale, in every cresting wave, I'll see your sail. His head remains bent over it as he tries to maintain what he cannot. Then Howe, who has been holding back, wells into tears. My love, I miss you already, but I am my hero always, says E. Go now, I will be brave. No, not yet. I must hold you again. He carefully encircles her and they kiss as though it is the last time. As he holds her, he wears a look of, why am I leaving? And then we see I must, as resolve sets in. You mean so much to me, Elizabeth. I would rather stay here and never go back than part from you. But I must finish my mission and report back. Only then will I absolve my name that needs no pardon. For our son's sake and ours and those connected to me, I must do this. It is expected. 
Keep yourself safe, Elizabeth. Be cautious. Patterson and Ella will watch over you. I love you, Elizabeth. Never doubt my love. He says, I will. And one day you will see my sail, and our son will be aboard with me. He looks at her, and they both cry as they hug. Then he wipes his tears, steps out of the coach while putting her poem in his pocket. He unties his horse and calls his men over. James, I entrust Elizabeth's safekeeping to you. I will look after her with my life, General. Thank you, James, my friend. Safe journey, William. How goes over to E and their hands lock. She has his ring on her finger. He kisses it and says, Elizabeth, I love only you. E says goodbye through her tears and bravely smiles. Hal rides off with three of the officers as E and Patterson watch. After a while, he turns. His horse rears up on its hind legs and he waves his hat as E waves and then cries. Patterson says, Elizabeth, never doubt his love for you. He will wait forever. William cannot live without you. I know him. I swear it. Thank you, James. They ride off and go down to the harbor where E keeps watch until his sail disappears. Scene 119, London, Westminster. We see General Howe walking down a long corridor to the king's chambers. The sound of his boots resound through the halls as ministers look on and murmur to each other. The general is dismissive of most of them, except those Masonic brethren in his fold of the feel and the nod. The first minister, foolish, whoever thought two Whigs could lead the British army against the rebellion, they're all friends of the house. The other minister, who's been watching as well, turns his head with interest. Brilliant, though. How so? The second minister does not turn in response, but keeps watch on Howe's progress and what the others might be saying. For now, he says, in defeat, they have need of them. I see, the other says, Tory power grab. Precisely. Another two ministers speaking. Now what? Give him time. He will not let us down or himself. Another grouping. He is so dismissive. He's scared underneath. <laughs> the minister with him dismisses the comments with a very slight upturn of his mouth. Cut to door of King's chamber opening and Hal walking in. The King takes him in at a distance, feels all that is there, but not as well as Hal does his cousin, and the King knows it. The King, well, cousin, what happened? The King nods with, you may draw closer. Hal moves in and bows low, your majesty. There was interference. The king waits for more and nothing comes. Who interfered? Not your main. He was lax, the king says. 
The king gives himself away there, and each subtly knows it. God did your majesty. Pause as the king studies how. Cousin, I am not in a humorous mood. Let us see if I can put all the pieces together. While your delays and pullbacks, your partial victories, your cautious and practical behavior, except in moments of gambling, drinking, and a Mrs. Loring were taking place, God interfered? Yes, your majesty. His scheme was different. And you are on the level with this, the king asked. There is heroically intoned feel accompanying Howe's answer that is not missed by the king. I am your majesty. Can you elaborate, the king asks? Censures have been made against me, majesty. There will be a resolution for an inquiry and then a date set for a public hearing. All will be revealed at that time in my narrative. The king says the next imperiously. Why can you not tell us now? How weighs all within himself from within God at the fess heart point if he should divulge all now? How? In the telling, during the inquest, events will be revealed from my circumstance on the level and from the feel of those words, your majesty, you will know what I say is true and that I acted in your best interest, majesty, and England's. The king looks partially sold because he felt it. The king if anyone other than you had said it so, he would be headed toward the stocks? How as the king studies his cousin? Yes, something like that. Silence as both weigh and are aware of whoever speaks next loses ground. The king, we will await the outcome. How wears only the smallest hint of success, which the king does not feel. The king continues with feel. For where men of fine feeling are concerned, there is very seldom any misunderstanding, cousin. They each nod to the other with feel. Your majesty, how bows low and continuously as he back paces out the door. As Howe's door closes behind him, there is a knock on another door. A lord of the king's privy council comes in and bows low. Lord Thurlow, my liege, General Howe's reason for his perplexing action in America was masonically wrought. Go on. As I heard from a Masonic source in strictest confidence, General Howe had a moment atop Breed Hill that was miraculous. A holy royal arch moment, majesty. And it was at that time that he, in God's fullness, realized that the rebel's cause was the sacred cause. The king, Sir William has rebelled against me? Thurlow, may I, your majesty? The king sits with yes for the lord to intuit. 
Thurlow, as General Howe told General Lee, whom he considered both a traitor and a deserter, that Britain was the mother country, that you, sir, and the Parliament are forms of the supreme power, the king nods, the lord continues, and the supreme power is absolute and uncontrollable, and that all resistance must consequently be rebellion. The Lord waits for the king to nod and then proceeds. And then, Sir William said, God is the supreme power, the source and master architect of the universe. The king sits and ponders. What think you, Thurlow? My cousin is ever on the level. Is there a reason to doubt his motive now? Thurlow. If Sir William states it thus, it is derived from all that he is, a master mason of the ancient knight's Templar degree. The king. After his, the inquiry, I will hear from him again. Your majesty, Thurlow says, and bows deferentially. Scene 120, London. We come to this scene from above the action. We see a circular gallery in Parliament where court persons and interested others watch the proceedings below. All await Sir William. Camera cut to the lower level as we watch Sir William enter the lion's den with an utterly confident demeanor. He is ready for battle. The camera pans the faces of ministers Lord North and others. Howe sits and takes out his papers from a valise. The camera draws in and we see papers labeled under the heading narrative. We watch as he writes in the margin, false, no doubt, must be perceived, none, however, proceeding from a want of zeal. The camera shifts back to the gallery where we listen in on their comments. Spectator one, was there a deficiency in Howe's military science? Two, had to be, or was it Ministerial policy, no matter. Clinton is the commander now. He will get the job done. One nods his head in agreement. Two, if Clinton had been in charge, the rebellion would have been stifled in its birth. Separate group. Three, will Howe recover from this? Four, in 20-odd years of service, he remains unscathed. Will Germain and North bring him down? Unlikely. Three, I agree. How rarely plays a bad hand or game, for that matter. Four, true. Yes, truth in that. I have been at the receiving end of his perfect read. They smile and nod together. Three, the uninitiated say the hows are not smart, but they possess luck, four, and those who know them say they are brilliantly wise, and luck has nothing to do with it. Another group, five, someone has to take the blame. The ministry had a right to expect some powerful efforts proportioned to the armaments, six, Sir William is in the crosshairs, and his actions may be found insufficient. Five, true, so many of his vigorous sorties should have decided this matter. Who will testify for the ministers? Six, 
Clinton has the most complaint, and Lord Percy, good friend of the general. But something happened while Percy was on Long Island, and he resigned. Five, before Rhode Island, I heard, and Percy will not testify. But that is a conversation for another day. What about General Gray? Six, possibly Gray. I, too, remember hearing something a while back that he was not entirely behind the Philadelphia campaign. Camera cut to the floor where a door opens and we see Minister Lord Germain enter. Hal studies him as he walks to his seat. Germain sits and a standing courtier calls the room to order. Germain, Sir William, you may proceed with your narrative. How? rises slowly with measured movement and heroic confidence and reads his prepared statement. Many are the censures that have been passed upon me. The misrepresentations and false arguments of my enemies have made a deep impression upon minds too prompt to decide, whilst ignorance of the true state of facts has left the unprejudiced in doubt. Those who alone could do me justice have been silent, and therefore to the judgment of the committee and to the impartiality of the country at large, I flatter myself with the hope of an ample justification. Camera cut to spectators who whisper as Howe continues to speak, but we cannot discern Howe's words. For the silent ones are the Freemasons who swear an oath of secrecy, Three, ironic, his warrior brethren loves him, but cannot speak. Camera cut to Hal, that I never flattered the minister with improper hopes of seeing the war terminated in any one campaign, with the force at any one time under my command. Cut to spectators, Hal continues to speak. We hear both, but understand only the spectators. One, I hear from General Burgone that on the way to the colonies, Hal boasted that he would finish the campaign in one battle. Two, moot point, Gage was in command then, not Hal. Cut to Hal, I hasten to the action on Long Island, of which I received the complaint, and I quote, had the troops been permitted to go on, it is my opinion they would have carried the redoubts. Howe stops reading, pauses, and looks at the ministers. He says his next lines with a general's gaze at Germain and then North, who show they know nothing. I am at a loss to know from whence it has been supposed that carrying the lines would have been followed by the defeat of the rebel army. On the other hand, the most essential duty I had to observe was not wantingly to commit His Majesty's troops where the object was inadequate. Cut to spectators. Three. What is he really saying there? Four. Brilliant. How is passing information to the master masons in the room? Seven. That's it. How saw too much bloodshed and became cautious. Eight. The hero of the heights does not become cautious. A cat does not shed its stripes. It comes to him and he whispers to himself. He found our cause to be not adequate, not God's. Seven. Pardon? Eight. 
No, nothing. Cut to how reading. On the 28th of October, the engagement in New York, White Plains, took place. It has been asserted that, by my not attacking the lines that day, I lost an opportunity of destroying the rebel army. Camera looks at the ministers who are not buying this, and the gallery can be heard chuckling. Camera cut to Hal for a moment, who stands there assessing his intuition from within. Then his eyes brighten with wisdom as he weighs if he will say what he wants to say, which is what just popped into his mind. The committee must give me credit when I assure them that I have political reasons and no other for declining to explain why that assault was not made. Now there is silence, and Hal waits like a good gambler for his meaning to weigh in upon them, as they think if he means masonry or some reason truly political. He feels out their indecision and then continues on in complete control, not reading from his script. Upon inquiry, those reasons might, if necessary, be brought out in evidence at the bar. If, however, the assault had been made and the lines carried, the enemy would have got off without much loss. Cut to the gallery, where we see a few get up quickly and practically topple those seated next to them in order to quickly report to those not in attendance. Four, did you see that? Three, yes, straight to the king. Four, political reasons? Masonry. The officers are masons. Three, except Brigone, they smile. Camera cut to a very confident how. He has great intoned weight when he delivers his next lines. For, sir, though some persons condemn me for having endeavored to conciliate his majesty's rebellious subjects, taking every means to prevent the destruction of the country, instead of irritating them by a contrary mode of procedure, yet am I, for many reasons in my own mind, that I acted in that particular for the benefit of the king's service. Ministers themselves, I am persuaded, did at one time entertain a similar doctrine. And from a circumstance not now necessary to dwell upon. Camera cut to ministers Germain and Norris' faces. They cannot believe what they have heard. Germain turns and whispers something to his aide, who walks out to report cut to the gallery where two lords of the king's privy council halifax and suffolk are seated halifax says the next slowly and with weight circumstance source he had god's reason in this i am sure of it suffolk yes quite sir william is justified masonic secrets will not be revealed in evidence at the bar shall we the earl of halifax says they leave. Camera cut to the king with the privy council, Halifax, Suffolk, and Talbot. The king. Sir William told me he was on the level and that we would be told what went on later. The king looks to Halifax. Halifax. God was involved with policy, majesty. 
General Howe must have realized the sacred cause was America's and not England's. More than half of our ranks thought that to be true from the beginning of this war. It seems, Your Majesty, that General Howe saw English masonry through to the end. We see the king prepared to ask something of Suffolk, but then, because of a sudden remembrance, his head whips back to Halifax with a speaking look. You heard me before. Halifax nods and the king smiles. The king looks to Suffolk, who speaks next. I would not doubt the general's purpose in this, your majesty, or Lord Admiral Howe's. The king looks to Talbot. Your Majesty, my counsel is to call off this inquiry. Masons will stand with Sir William and God. Anything else? The king asks. Suffolk. The information I only just heard now seems relevant. Lord Germain's fair copy of his letter to General Howe has been lost. There is no record of it. And thus, there is no evidence of a clear and explicit order given to General Howe to march toward General Burgoyne up the Hudson to Albany. And while in the gallery, I also heard that Germain's officer at the war office, a Christopher de Oily, has resigned. The king's look of disbelief turns into, that will be all, as he smiles at Halifax. Lord Halifax, please stay a moment. Your Majesty, they are alone. Your thoughts, Halifax. Ingenious, Your Majesty. William broke through the foul and ugly mist and did imitate the sun. The word, Halifax? Yes, Your Majesty, the word. The general saw masonry through to the end. Ingenious scheme, divinely wrought, Halifax nods. Through God's open vessel, the king looks with how. Your majesty, brethren, if I may, the king nods. It is not our stars, but through ourselves, perceiving the sun within through feel that enables us to become other than who we think we are. Masonry through to the end, is it Halifax? He nods. Halifax. Not equity and advancement, Majesty, rather individual good works toward Templar levels of perception will see us home, home in our center. Halifax pauses as the king takes all in. Halifax, Your Majesty, Sir William is one of the few who knows how to redeem God's time when his attention becomes circumspect as he maintains observance of God at his center X through flowing feel. Pause as the king thinks it over. And the crown shall reward he who dared and had the genius to contrive for the glory of God. What think you, Halifax? A future seat on our privy council for England's friend and perfected son, Sir William Howe? Cut back to the floor where Howe is reading. 
Had it been afterward judged good policy to turn the plan of the war into an indiscriminate devastation of that country, and had I been thought the proper instrument for executing such a plan, ministers, I presume, would have openly stood forth and sent clear, explicit orders." ambiguous messages, hints, whispers across the Atlantic to be avowed or disavowed at pleasure would have been paltry safeguards for the honor and conduct of the commander-in-chief. How pauses and looks at the ministers who seem powerless. And, sir, if the House of Commons or any other individual member shall have any charge or accusation to make against me, I declare myself ready and willing to meet it. My only wish is that every possible light may be thrown upon every part of my conduct. I move that Lord Cornwallis be called in. Lord Germain seems uncomfortable, and then he remembers himself and agrees with how the courtier summons Lord Cornwallis whose eyes mirror Hal's as he enters. Lord Cornwallis stands ready and begins his testimony, but we do not hear it because the camera cuts to a messenger who enters and walks up to Lord Germain. Germain reads the note and passes it down to Minister North. Lord Cornwallis knows all has ended and finishes his short testimony with General Sir William Howe in my estimation, acted at all times in the highest and best traditions of His Majesty's military service. Lord Germain, thank you, Lord Cornwallis. Cornwallis sits next to Howe, and they share a reserved nod. Lord Germain stands slowly and looks at Howe, with the slightest smile of, you crafty SOB. Howe's face reveals nothing, but his presence is alive with everything. Germain, Sir William Howe, it is in the unanimous ruling of this body that this matter be dismissed. Thank you for your briefing, Sir William. From below, we hear the buzz of the gallery above and clapping and then cheering. Sir William rises with a small smile and Lord Cornwallis offers his commander his hand with a warrior's smile. Well done, commander. Thank you, Lord Cornwallis. Not so bad. Took a lot of bloody preparation, though. One more step. I believe I have a meeting with the king. See you afterward? The usual? I'd like that. Howe walks to a side door. Everyone watches. An officer of the Royal Guard comes to attention, salutes, opens the door, and nods to the general. We follow him as he walks alone down an elegant gallery of paintings. His boot heels give rise to reverberating sound that mirrors his epic presence. The general stops in front of a fine painting of his brother, Lord George. He crosses his heart and says, We did it, brother, for the glory of God. He proceeds down the hall and comes to a full stop in front of the painting of a young and charismatic General James Wolfe. He crosses both arms. Your vision completed, commander, for the glory of God. At the end, another door 
is opened for him, and this elegant gallery is filled with masons of varying degrees, including members of the king's privy council, who form two columns in a show of very solemn and deferential respect for one of their own, who knew God and himself as one without difference. As he walks through, they nod to him with great spiritual zeal, and at the end of the line are Lord North and Lord Germain, who nod as well. Lord Thurlow is there, and a door opens. Sir William, the king will see you now. Sir William Howe enters and bows very low to the king, and then takes a green envelope from his pocket. The king nods, and Sir William walks forward. Well, cousin and friend, what have you there? The king asks. Sir William reads the king, smiles, and hands him the green envelope same had given to the admiral. I believe this is yours, your majesty.